Thank you, Don. And I know the standards are going to be very high uh, for that um, for membership in that uh, that particular uh, group. Okay, we're looking at God's Word this morning, and uh, we're going to continue with Matthew chapter twenty-four. So, if you turn with uh, with me there, I hope you get a blessing from this uh, this morning's uh, word. And it's good to see Aroma back this morning from her trip uh, overseas. Children looks very happy as well. We'll be reading only uh, two verses this morning. And it's verses 9 and 10. So Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 and 10. It says there, Read with me. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Let's pray before we uh, look at these verses. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Father, we thank you that we have your word, and we can trust every word in that word. And Father, we just pray this morning that as I preach this preached the, the message this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be working in my heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here. Lord, that we might know you better, that we might understand your ways more, that we might live more faithfully for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had the privilege in my, um, in my um, what you call worldly work, um, in the cleaning industry, of meeting a number of individuals who have come from overseas. You see a lot of people who get into the cleaning industry are involved, or have come from countries where, where they've run, had to run away, where they've, they've literally had to come to Australia and uh, they don't have much with them. So what they do is they, they, they set themselves up and they, uh, they work as cleaners. Um, not many people in Australia, you know, while they're going through high school and college and university, are thinking they're going to become professional cleaners. So a lot of people who are working as cleaners are, are there because they have to. They have to work. Um, but a lot of these individuals whom I've had the privilege of getting to know and, uh, and, and meet um, have told me stories about how they had to run away, basically, from where they lived. So imagine living in a, in a, in a town and then having to literally run because you were being persecuted for simply being a Christian. Um, I know a lot of um, uh, Iraqis who have come to Australia um, have come here because they've had to run away from uh, Muslim persecution. And some of the stories they've told me have been absolutely incredible. They've, they've told me of stories where they've had to, in the dead of night, you know, take their, their, take their families and run in the darkness through, through um, deserts and, you know, and across dangerous places into countries where they didn't know what they were going to find and... And it's been a, um, and how they've had to leave their older parents there, not knowing what would become of them. How they've had to um, uh, try and organise transport and have very little to live off, you know, in the, in the meantime, not knowing what tomorrow would bring, where they would find themselves. Now, how they had to go through foreign lands, um, how they had to struggle with, uh, you know, having to look after their families, or sometimes they were completely alone having no one else to be able to support them. And I struggle with that idea because I can't, I've never experienced it. I mean, my, my, 
grandparents, and my parents came out to Australia as migrants, uh, and they came out, yeah, and they, they came out, you know, by themselves, and then they tried to set up their families over here and bring their families over here, but they had quite a fair bit of support, but they didn't have to run. They didn't find themselves in the middle of nowhere, not knowing what would happen. They booked, they booked their tickets on ships, and they, they, they came across, and it was all pretty well organised. But when you can't organise that sort of thing, and you're, and you're not knowing what tomorrow would bring, it's a very different situation. Um, and as I was thinking about this message this morning, I, I thought about those uh, as ISIS, you know, that, um, that Islamic uh, group is working its way trying to conquer a particular territory. They come across villages and, and small towns and, and they basically surround a town, they, they work their way through it, they decimate what's in there and if they're Christians in there or people from a different, you know, sort of group that they don't agree with, you've got a pretty good, uh, pretty good chance of getting killed. Um, or being forced to convert, or some, something else that's, that's quite, uh, quite terrible. Um, I thought of what it would be like to feel isolated. Can you imagine living in a small town that's being surrounded by an army, whose only, whose only job it is is to wipe you out? I, I, that would be quite a scary, a scary thing. And throughout the Bible, we find many individuals who suffered similar sorts of things. When you think of people like Noah who God called to, to build an ark when it had never rained before. And the world, the Bible says, was full of violence. Can you imagine what it would, be, would, have, been, what it would have been like for him after 120 years of preaching, still didn't get anyone? That's, that's faithfulness. Um, but also he would have suffered a great deal of persecution and feeling alone with, with he and his family. And then can you imagine when the floods came... And wiped everyone else off the face of the earth, and there's only eight of you, and the whole world, no one else. That would have been quite a feeling of, uh, of solitude, let me tell you. Moses, who ran away from, from Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness by himself, um, looking after sheep. It would have been quite a, uh, quite a difficult thing. And when he got back to his people, when God had called them to come and save them, uh, they, didn't, they rejected him. And even... Through, the whole, through that whole ordeal, the whole mission that he had to rescue his people, he, he still was oftentimes um, rejected by his own people. King David, before he became King David, was persecuted by King Saul, who didn't want him to become king. So he chased him all around Israel and all over the place, trying to kill him because he knew that God had wanted David to become king. Elijah is another one. Jeremiah was another one. I mean, Jeremiah was a... Interesting story. He knew, God told him, I'm going to um, allow the, um, who were they, the, um, the Babylonians to come and to, and to destroy Israel because of Israel's sin. And Jeremiah was the only prophet at that stage who was telling the truth. And he was saying, you better um, surrender because God's going to wipe us out if you don't. And so no one was listening to him. So imagine you were the only person singing one particular song and everyone's singing, the, singing it a different way. Everyone's saying something opposite to what you're saying and they're calling you a liar and they're calling you this. And he knew in his heart that he was telling the truth. But in the end, he saw that destruction of his own people and he wept. But then, when I think about who suffered the most rejection and who it was that was betrayed and left alone more than anyone else, I'd have to say it was Jesus. When I look at his life, and imagine this situation where you know, even as a child, that you are 
You are the son of God. You are God and, and man in the flesh at the same time. And you have to behave yourself the same way as everyone else. Imagine that. You have to, you have to conceal what you, what you are in a sense when you're young. He, can't, he couldn't go telling everyone that he's, that he's God in the flesh when he was young. His mission started when he was 30 years old. He couldn't go telling everyone before the time was right. So imagine growing up with your peers. You know how teenagers are? Now, it wouldn't have been very different to now. So you've got teens who want to get into mischief and that. And if he's with them, the pressure on him would have been quite strong to go and do the wrong thing and get into, get into, you know, into things that he wasn't meant to do. So you had to resist all that. Can you imagine having to obey your, your parents when you're their creator? You're their creator and you're their sustainer. And, but in all of that, he had, to, he had to obey his parents. He had to be right in everything that he did. Jesus walked alone on the earth. There was no man on the earth like him. There was no one. And can you imagine the attacks that he would have been under uh, from, through Satan on a daily basis, no doubt. He would have been under attack like no one else would have been attacked. And then when he started his ministry, he was completely misunderstood by the, by the people he came to save. So much so that they, they decided they had to kill him to get him out of the way. And can you imagine even after three years of being with his disciples and on his way to being hung on a cross, that his disciples were fighting over who was going to be on the left and right, right-hand side and who was going to be the, the greatest in his kingdom. They misunderstood and they totally didn't understand what he was on about. But he came to die. And he died alone. He died on a cross, humiliated, um, and made a spectacle of. He died alone. So much so that most of his disciples ran away from him. Have you ever felt that the whole world has turned against you? Have you ever felt like that? And it might not be that the whole world's really turned against you, but the people that you know, your families, your friends, have turned against you in some way, and you might, you might think to yourself, but I'm doing the right thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the right in this particular position over here, but everyone's turned against you. Everyone's taken someone else's side. You ever felt, ever felt like that in your life? You ever felt alone? It's not a nice feeling, is it? Well, today, what we're looking at is and the title of the message is When the Whole World Turns Against You. What's it like? What do you do? How did you feel when that, when that happened to you? Well, you may be even feeling it now. Have you ever been so persecuted, so left out and rejected that you feel totally alone? The worst is when it happens with your family. You know, when your family rejects you, the people that you love the most and they reject you, uh, that would be the worst. And I know when I know plenty of Christians who have suffered that sort of that sort of rejection in their own families. Now let's look at this background of this of this passage. Matthew twenty four, nine and, and ten. Jesus is speaking to particularly the Jews. And he's, and he's answering, remember, he's answering a question that they, they asked him. And the question simply was, when will be the end of the world? 
And when, what are the signs of your coming? When will you return? Um, they're asking him also about the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. But he's, he's answering them about the end of the world and his return. And he's speaking specifically to the Jews here. And what would happen to them when they turned to him? And in those days, what he's, the time he's referring to is specifically a time that we call the tribulation period. It's the last seven years on this planet before Jesus returns, before the battle of Armageddon, when he comes and wipes out the armies of the world and he takes his place as the king of this world. So it says in verse 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now that's alone. That's being rejected by the whole world. You know, in our... In our Society at the moment in an atmosphere where terrorism is concerning a lot of people. And the, gov- the government encourages people to dob if they see some suspicious activity, right? Make sure you let the government know because someone might be trying to plan some sort of a terrorist attack or something along those lines. And it, I suppose there's merit to that sort of thing when you see what we've seen on TV and you see some of the atrocities that, uh, that we've, we've, we've seen. But in that, there has to be a very, very careful and fine line. There has to be a, a delineating line in that a whole group of people who are innocent aren't swept up in this whole thing too and made to be scapegoats. But can you imagine a society where it's a crime to be a member of Christianity, to be a Christian or to be a Jew, when it's actually a crime against the state to be that? And it's actually... Present, it's also already in some, some uh, countries in the world where it's actually against the law to be that. And this is, has occurred in the past, and especially in the early years of the church, when the church was just flourishing and when it was just starting to grow and it was spreading and, and, and there was a Roman army, the Roman sorry, empire at, at that stage in power and the Jews weren't happy what was going on because they thought they were going to infiltrate them and, um, and they were, you know... Uh, whinging basically to the, to the Romans to say you've got to keep these Christians under control and the pagans were upset about it as well because Christians wouldn't bow down to their gods and they were ruining their whole business of making idols and stuff like that so the church experienced tremendous uh, persecution uh, during the years of the Roman, Roman Empire, not all of them but very soon on um, and they were considered threats to the whole empire because they would not bow down to other gods but the same thing happened to the Jews when they were considered threats by Pharaoh in Egypt, do you remember? and he turned them all into slaves and he turned them all into slaves because he considered them a threat the Bible says they were growing so quickly that the Egyptians thought it, saw them as a threat to their own culture so in order to control them they made them all slaves In the Middle Ages, the Jews were considered troublemakers. They've always been considered troublemakers, haven't they? There have been so many people who have actually considered the Jews the cause of their problems, one way or the other. And it's interesting because um, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church had had an open policy. In other words, they were accepting stories and all types of um, allegations against Jews 
um, and they, they used it as a, as, a, as a pretense to try to get them out of the country, try to get them out of, and, and excommunicate them from a lot of countries, actually. So they made up stories about them abducting little Christian children to sacrifice in satanic rituals. So imagine that. Imagine you make up a story and you say, uh, the Jews have been abducting, you know, if, if a child goes missing, they say that the Jews took them and they've been sacrificing them. Um, stories were contrived that worked on the superstition of the day, such as the Eucharist. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Eucharist is, the Eucharist is the, the communion bread that the Catholics have, and it's a Eucharist um, in a sense that they believe that Jesus dwells in that piece of bread bodily, actually. But that bread, when the priest blesses that bread, it actually becomes Jesus. So heaven forbid if you drop it on the floor, because you're dropping Jesus. That's how, that's how what they believe about the Eucharist. We believe it's a symbolic thing, but they actually believe, and I've grown up a Catholic, so I know what I'm talking about. They believe that that turns physically into Jesus. So you can't, you've got to be careful not to drop him and, and to treat that, that piece of bread reverently. In fact, the, the, the Catholics have, a, have a, um, a particular service where they worship that thing. So what they do is they, 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 they bless a, a piece of bread. It converts into actually Jesus. They put it into a, uh, into a golden sort of sunray thing and they bow down and they worship it. They pray to it. Seems actually incredible, doesn't it? But in the Middle Ages, stories used to go around that the, that the Jews would take those pieces of bread, steal them from churches, and try to re-crucify them again. You like that? So they would persecute. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died because of those sorts of stories. They believed that the Jews would try and stab them, and they'd try to, to crucify them again. And fanciful stories of those pieces of bread flying or trying to fly away and the Jews would catch it and, and do all types of nasty things to a piece of bread. Um, they were pretty much alone. They were pretty much alone. I mean, that stories, those stories are, are wrong on so many levels. It would, take me, it would take me days to actually take you through the, the, the doctrinal uh, issues with those, those things, other, regardless of the actual uh, lies that were behind them. But the same thing happened during the Holocaust. In the 1940s, the, the Jews were killed by the millions by the Nazis because they were blamed for the economy. They were blamed for being the problem in Germany. And it wasn't just in Germany, but as Germany spread and took over Poland and other places like that, they did the same things to the Jews there. They rounded them up, they put them in, um, they put them in ghettos or they put them in uh, concentration camps, they forced them to, to labour or they gassed them by the millions. There will come a day, believe it or not, when it will be worse than that. There will come a day when... The Nazi, what the Nazis did is going to be just a taste of what's going to come. And we call that time the, the, the tribulation period. And so can you imagine Hitler, okay, who was in charge of Germany and, and causing all types of problems there, can you imagine a, a Hitler, a type of Hitler, who's in charge of the whole world? Imagine the, the, the atrocities that are going to take place. And at this time, during this last seven years, he will turn the whole world against the Jews. In fact, just the Jewish believers. 
And it says in this verse that they will be afflicted. They're going to be turned over. See where it says there? They shall deliver you up. You know what that means, deliver you up? It means you're going to be turned in to the authorities. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be dobbed in. You're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to, people are going to notify the authorities and the churches that this person is a threat to our society. And then they'll be imprisoned, tortured, ultimately executed for being Jewish believers. Why? Because they, can, they will be considered a threat to the power of the Antichrist and the stability of the world, believe it or not. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13, verse 9. We're going to look at a few parallel passages that talk about the same the same thing. Mark chapter 13, verse 9. And then we'll look at Luke as well. Now this is the same... This is um, Mark's rendition of this particular time when Jesus was talking with his disciples. And it says here in Mark 13, 9, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils and in the synagogues, and ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, verse 12 and 13 says a similar thing. But Mark and Luke gives a little bit more information than Matthew. And it says in Luke 21, 12, But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Now, so what's... What they're basically saying is that they're going to become, um, uh, what's it called? The most wanted people in the world. They're going to be the most wanted. Okay? So they're going to be not just... You notice how it says they're going to deliver them up to councils and kings and rulers, as well as, it's just their synagogues, which is an interesting thing, isn't it? Synagogues. Why would they bring them to synagogues? Because they'll be rejected by their own people as well. They'll be, they're turned into their own synagogues and to councils and to prisons and they'll be considered outlaws not just in the world but in their, own, in their own people, with their own people as well. People within their own synagogues. And a synagogue is like a church where the Jews go and meet. Okay? And this is before the temple okay? or outside of the actual temple. This is where they meet on a regular basis, on a, on a weekly basis like we do. But people are going to turn them in. So... Be, it's like, imagine this, we're in a small group like this and we're meeting and then someone finds out that John over there has become a Christian. So the first thing, the first thing that happens is John's turned in to the, to the, to the, the church, they, they interrogate him and if they find that it's true, they then turn him over to the police and then he starts going through a court system and it's going to be against the law. So John has to then defend himself about what, he's, what he believes. 
At this particular time, at the beginning of the tribulation period, a number of Jews will put their faith in Christ. But the problem will be that Israel will not be regenerated just then. That the majority of people in Israel will not believe. So there's going to be a special group of people that put their faith in Christ, but they will be rejected by their own people and by the authorities. These chosen few will be there for a sign to the rest of the world. And notice that it says there that they shall be brought before kings and rulers as a testimony against them. So when they're going to be brought in front of these rulers and these kings and all these, all these, uh, these uh, high-placed individuals, the Bible says that they're going to speak certain words that will be a testimony against them. These believers will have the privilege of declaring the gospel to the world as a testimony against the world because the world will choose to believe a lie rather than accept the truth. And though the Antichrist will have the ascendancy at this time, he will be in, in, in strong power, in a strong position. He will be threatened by them enough to, tell, to, to actually convince the governments of the world that they need to be locked up. They need to be tortured to find out if there's anyone else that they've uh, um, uh, corrupted and they will be locked up and, and possibly killed. He will attempt to silence them. This is why the two passages in Mark and Luke then go on to say, look at verse 14 in Luke, like chapter 21, if you're still there. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And Mark says something very similar. You don't have to turn there. It says, And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you, which means lead you captive, and deliver you up to, uh, to be interrogated, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, ye shall speak it. For, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now, Christians get this mixed up a little bit with themselves at, at, uh, in this particular passage. But this passage is speaking to a specific group of Jews that will be delivered up during the tribulation period. And God will speak directly through them as a testimony against the people who are persecuting them. Do you understand that? There is a difference. What? And the question is, why wouldn't God say to them, get ready what you're going to say beforehand? He's literally saying, as they're leading you there, don't think in your mind what you're going to say. Don't plan it. Don't worry about it. Because I'm going to give you the exact words to speak when you actually get there. Why would he say that? Because these are prophets of God. These people will be the prophets to the world. Remember, the church isn't here at this time. The church has been raptured, taken out of the way. There's no more church. And what God has started again is with the, the nation of Israel. And Israel then becomes the witness to the whole world about Christ. And these individuals, and we'll look at who they are very shortly, these are the ones who God has called to be the prophets in this world. Do you remember how the Lord started with 12 apostles? were 12 disciples, and they became the main, the main ones who spread the gospel. Well, these are, going to, this is, these are the people who God's going to start with to spread the gospel in the tribulation period. 
when the church has been taken out of the way, the church is no longer there to be the, the example and the witness to the world, who's left? God starts with these guys. Okay? And we'll look at who they are very shortly. But God says to them, don't prepare. I'm going to give you the exact words to say because the words they speak are going to be exactly what God wants them to say because they are prophets of God. Okay? The words that they will speak will be declaring God's judgment on the world and on the inhabitants of the whole world because they have chosen to follow the beast or the Antichrist rather than follow God. And God will be declaring his judgment upon them. But these people will not only be rejected by their own kind but will be considered outlaws and subversive around the world all without having lifted a finger to hurt anyone else. They would not have threatened anyone else. They didn't have to do anything All they had to do was say, we believe in Jesus Christ and we follow him. That will be enough for them to be put in prison. Look at at verse 10 of Matthew 24. This is an interesting verse. If you think about it, it says, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. That's interesting, isn't it? Many are going to be offended and shall betray and shall hate. The, 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 the pure or the simple uh, way to read this thing is to, is to understand that these early tribulation believers will be considered social outcasts and a threat to civil order. They will be rejected by their own families. You know when you... And I know, I know a lot of you experience the same thing. When you became a Christian, but your family isn't Christian... What do they get? They become offended at you. They become offended that you've what? That you've rejected family tradition and customs and and religions. They become offended. So what do they then do? In this particular case, it says they will betray and they will begin to hate. It already happens in the world anyway, but this will be on a much higher scale. Turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 12 with me again. Mark chapter 13, verse 12, and we'll see what Mark's is about it, and then we'll see what Luke's is about it as well. Mark says here, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son. And children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now turn to Luke chapter 21 verse 16. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. 
Now, it's interesting when you think about it that parents are going to be betraying uh, their own children so they're put to death. Children are going to be betraying their parents to be put to death. It's going to be a, a, a seriously bad time. Can you imagine the, the, the sort of hatred you have to have to betray your own parents and to betray your own children? Um, it's going to be a terrible, terrible time. The world is going to be a, a severely dangerous place for believers in Christ during these days. Anyone who puts their faith in Christ will likely face betrayal from, and rejection from their own community, but also um, uh, prison, torture, and probably death. And though all these things have happened in the past, they will be unique in their degree and their scope around the world. Never, will, never has there been a worldwide thing like this. Never will there be the intensity that we will see, that we, we won't see, to be honest with you, that the world will see during this time. Never in the history of the world will a persecution exist to this extent. True Israel, and I say true, and I'm putting that in inverted commas because I'm going to explain that to you in a minute, shall be truly alone in the world. It will be alone, and the remnant whom, whom God has called and saved shall have the, the heavy burden, not just to be alone, but to be called to preach the gospel in the middle of that rejection. So with the beginning of the tribulation comes the birth of spiritual Israel. But who is the spiritual Israel that's rejected by their own brethren and the rest of the world? Um, as I've mentioned before, the Lord started with, called his disciples, and through those men he was able to spread the gospel throughout the world, correct? The reason we're here is because of the faithfulness of those men. As much as we read the gospel and we read and we say, these guys didn't understand what the Lord was talking about, these guys all died for what they believed and they spread the gospel throughout the world. They were faithful. Now, with the church out of the way, God's going to start with a special group. And it's related to 12 as well. He's going to call 12 tribes. But he's going to call 12,000 from every tribe. There's going to be 144,000 prophets in the world who will be saved at the same time who God will call to be a witness to the whole world. These are the ones I'm talking about. So in order to, to, for you to understand, we're going to jump into Revelation now. So you get the picture of how this, how this thing actually works. Turn to Revelation chapter 12 with me. And we're going to look at two quick chapters of Revelation. Actually, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to jump through three, three separate chapters. So you understand how all these things, things fit together. So Revelation chapter 12. Now, I know that some of you have been reading Revelation... And some of you have been struggling with Revelation because a lot of it has to do with imagery and it's talking about, um, it uses um, uh, certain individuals as symbols of, of, of certain things. But we're going to read through this thing now so you, uh, hopefully you'll understand a little bit more how it fits together. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 1 and we'll read to verse 6. Now remember, this is in the tribulation period, the last seven years on this earth before Jesus returns. Okay, Look at verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. 
and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now jump down to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of his seed, which keep the commandments of God and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. How's that? Confused? Okay. Now, although we're not going to go into all the details of this particular passage, what we're going to do is identify who the main players are, who the main people are. Now, you'll notice it mentions a woman. It mentions a child. It mentions the dragon or the serpent, okay? And I think once we've got those three worked out, it'll, it'll tend to actually work together. Now, we'll start with the most obvious. Who's the dragon? The devil. Okay, that's the most obvious. And we know it's the dragon, the devil. You know why? Because it says in verse 4, okay, it says that his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and it cast them to the earth. Now... What does that mean? What do you know about a third? Where have you heard a third before? Yeah, Satan rebelled. We know that Satan rebelled at a particular time, straight after the creation, or very soon after the creation, and drew a third of the angels with him. So this is using that imagery of a dragon using his tail and, and sweeping up a third of, of, it calls them stars here, but they're angels, okay? And it cast them to the earth. He didn't cast them to the earth, but he... He called them to come to the earth and cause havoc here. Right? So that dragon is the devil. Okay, But who were the woman and the child? Well, when I was growing up, the woman was supposed to be Mary. Right? Don't laugh. The woman was supposed to be Mary. And on the face of it, it sort of fits because it says here... It says that the woman, if you look at it, the, 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 the verse 2, she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And then it says in verse 5, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So, mm, sounds like it's Mary, doesn't it? And the child seems to be Jesus, doesn't it? Okay, well, if those two, because it makes sense, because do you remember what happened when, when Mary had Jesus? What did Herod try to do? Yeah. He went to Bethlehem and tried to kill, he actually killed all the, the, the children under a certain age. So see how it says here that the, the devil was waiting as soon as the child was going to be born to devour it? Well, the devil used Herod to try to achieve that purpose. You get that? 
So the devil inspired Herod that as soon as he found out the child was born, he, was, he went there to try to kill all the children under a certain age. And that was the devil trying to devour this, this child because he knew that when the Messiah was going to be born, he was finished. His time was short. So he tried to stop God's plan from happening. So this, this passage over here is actually a passage of two times. The first time is when Jesus was born, okay, and the devil tried to stop that from happening. And then later on, there's another time, which actually happens during the tribulation period. So there's two separate, two separate time periods over here. Turn with me to Revelation 19, verse 13. Now, there is one part that we read in Revelation 12, 5. So turn to 19, verse 13. But in just before you, before you start reading there, I want you to listen to this. Revelation 12, 5, I want to remind you of what it says. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Right? A rod of iron. Now, look at what it says in Revelation 19, 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that, he, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is it? Christ. That's very clearly... Christ. Because look what it says. It says that his name is called the Word of God. What does John call him in John chapter 1? The Word. He is the Word. And when he returns, this is, this is when Jesus returns after the Antichrist has, has taken over the world and he comes to destroy his armies and to throw him into hell. And it says there his name is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That can only be Jesus. But it says here... Um, in verse 15, it says that he, he with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. All right, so we know who the child is. It's definitely Jesus. Okay, so we know that the dragon is the devil. We know the child is Jesus, but who gave birth to Jesus? Wasn't it Mary? It was. Don't ruin the whole thing, will you? It can't. It can't be Mary. So that, that's a, what do they call those people who tell you the end of the movie or the end of the story before? Spoilers. Yeah. Okay. It can't be Mary. It can't be Mary because, because this, this passage refers to not just the time when Jesus was born, but also for the tribulation period. Now, we're talking about a, a, a distance of 2,000 years, correct? Now, unless Mary, Mary has lived through all those 2,000 years and continues to live at the, today and live into the tribulation, it can't be her. She's already in heaven. Okay. Well, if you've been listening to Alan's sermon, and you've, you've obviously listened to the comment over there. I don't know who we did. I'm going to get you after. Um, <laughs> you may have heard that a woman generally represents a religious system. Have you heard him say that? The woman, when it's, when it's talking about in symbolic terms, represents a, a religious system and as it does in the book of Revelation, there's another woman. And it says the woman who rides the beast, that's another religious system. That's the devil's religious system that will come into play during that time. Um, so 
question, could it be the church? Could it be the church? The answer is no. It can't be the church. And the reason it can't be the church is that who gave birth to who? Did the church give birth to Jesus? Or was it more the other way around? Well, it couldn't have been that the church can't give birth to Jesus because when did the church start? It started at Pentecost. Right? The church started and commenced at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. So the church came after. Jesus was born 33 years before. Okay? So this woman here can't be the church. Uh, and remember, in the tribulation period, the church has been taken away before. So it can't be the church in the middle of the tribulation period either. This woman has to be something else. And this woman is what we call spiritual Israel. Remember, who Mary was a part of. Do you remember? Mary was the faithful Israel. Or she represented the faithful Israel. So the woman not only was existent when Jesus was born, but the woman exists during the tribulation period when God starts with the faithful ones again. When Israel opens up her eyes again and says, Oh, Jesus was the real Messiah. I'm going to begin to follow him. So you'll notice that Israel takes during throughout the whole book of Revelation center stage. You don't hear the church. And apart from the first few chapters where Jesus is talking to the to the particular churches, after that, after chapter three, you don't hear of the church anymore. But you hear of Israel a lot of times, you hear. And you hear of specific things about Israel during that whole time. So Israel takes centre stage in the book of Revelation and none more so than the ones we call the 144,000. And these are the ones I'm gonna, I'm, I've been talking about all this time. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Now, Revelation 7, verse 4. Look what it says here. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asa were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of... Uh, Nephthalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. Okay? And these people represent that beginning, that birth, that takes place again at the beginning of the tribulation period. These are the ones who are going to be persecuted. These are the ones who are going to be brought before kings and before, um, before their churches because they're going to say, they're going to declare that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And, they're going, and they've been given the responsibility to preach the word to the whole world at this time. And Satan will do his best to destroy this, this woman. But the Lord will rescue her. And although they shall essentially be alone in the world, they will have a huge responsibility. 
they will have the responsibility to declare the gospel to the whole world at that stage. And that will be what's called a testimony against the world because the world will ultimately reject. But they will have incredible success too. Because not only will they be faithful, these 144,000 who are sealed by God will be faithful to the end and to death. Look what happens after they preach. Look at verse 9 of chapter 7 in Revelation. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And look at verse 14. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These came out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation are the last three and a half years, the worst part of the actual tribulation period. And you know why? Because of the faithful preaching and testimony of these 144 who remained faithful to the end. But they're going to be alone. They will be alone. And although they will preach and they will, and they will have converts and, they, and people will be saved as a result, they will have a huge responsibility on their, on their shoulders. They will be persecuted from place to place. They will be pursued by the devil because they are his biggest threat. And they represent spiritual Israel. Okay? That's each interesting when you look at Chapters 25 of Matthew, as we're, going to go, as we're going to go on, there's a particular passage that speaks about, you know the virgins, the wise and the foolish virgins? Okay, these were virgin men. It's interesting how they're, how they're actually virgins as well and how they're faithful. But they're going to be alone in the world. So what can we learn from it? Because we're not going to be there. The church will not be there. We will be taken out of the way before and God will begin the program again with Israel. What can we learn? Well, even though we aren't in the tribulation period, this is what we can learn. That in this world, we can expect persecution and trials anyway. The Apostle Paul suffered a great deal of persecution and abandonment by his own people. And by the time he was writing the letter to Timothy, he was locked up in a prison in Rome, ready to be tried far away from home and waiting for a trial before Caesar. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll look at just, just three small points about what we can take away from this thing. I know we love, we love to understand what's going to happen in the end, but we need to understand what we should do about it now. So I want us to take away some, some points about what we should be doing today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Now this is... This is the Apostle Paul writing from a prison cell. Okay? He's writing 
to Timothy, a young man that he's put in charge of, uh, of the church at Ephesus, and he's, he's writing and expressing um, what, what, he's, what he's gone through. And it says in verse 10, 2 Timothy 3.10, 3, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what, percu- what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Now Paul says that he, that he suffered a great deal for the faith, but he, he was faithful in all things. It says he was his doctrine was pure. His manner of life was good. His purpose was, was sure in the Lord. He had faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. But he suffered persecution. He suffered afflictions. And he suffered him in a number of different places. And now he was in a prison at this stage. Paul assures us that those who seek to live godly lives will suffer persecution because of what they want to do, because of their lives, because of who they stand for. They will suffer persecution. And as the world goes on, it will get worse and worse and worse because men will become more and more evil. That applies to our day. It doesn't apply to the, the, the tribulation period. Well, the tribulation period will be a huge magnification of that. Today, we should be prepared to receive wrong for doing what's right. We should be prepared to be ridiculed and mocked for saying the truth. We should be ready to be made scapegoats, even when you're doing what's good. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of when the world mocks you or persecutes you in whatever form. What is shameful, though, will be if we shy away or we run away from the truth. What will be shameful is if we don't live godly, What will be shameful is if we hide the fact of who we are so we don't get persecuted. God's called us to live, live openly as Christians, and we will receive persecution because of it. But you know something? Praise God if we do. Praise God. Because if you receive persecution, if you're made a fool of, if you're ridiculed, if you're persecuted, if you're, if you're uh, going through tribulations and trials, you know something? Count yourself worthy. Because a lot of better people than us went through a lot worse than us for the, name, for the sake of the gospel. If we receive any persecution, we should count ourselves as privileged because many actually gave their lives who are much better than me. Next thing we can learn is that the 144,000 remained faithful. They remained faithful to the end. And as a result of their faithfulness, millions got saved because they were faithful in what they were called to do. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they might also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul suffered, he says, and he was willing to suffer 
simply so other people could hear the gospel and be saved. That's the important thing for us in this world. If we allow people to go to hell because we're too timid, too weak, too scared or fearful of, of being persecuted or of being ridiculed, what's more important? The fact that we're ridiculed? What's, what, what, what's, a, greater, what's a greater evil? You, you or I being made fools of or someone spending an eternity in hell that we didn't share the gospel with? You know the answer to that, that one, don't you? It's, it's painfully obvious that if we hold back from sharing the truth because we're scared, what are we allowing to happen? Yet these 144,000 who were alone, essentially, in the world and persecuted were faithfully bringing millions to Christ. We shouldn't be offended if persecution come upon us. Look at, turn with me to John chapter 16, verse 1. Really finished. John chapter 16, verse 1. These things, now Jesus is speaking to his disciples. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. And he's speaking to his disciples. He didn't want them to be offended. Look at verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And that's what, exactly what happened to them. They all died for their faith. They were kicked out of the synagogues. They were rejected by their own people. And Jesus says, don't be offended when that time comes. I'm telling you beforehand, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be kicked out of your churches, you're going to be rejected by your own people. When the time comes when that will happen, don't be offended, because I've already told you it will happen. So, what's the message to us this morning? Don't be offended. Expect it. Don't be offended if bad things happen to you because you stand on the word of God. And there aren't many today. If many people stood and believed in the Bible and believed in, the, in what the Bible taught, our church would be full. But most people don't believe what the Bible teaches. They will not accept what the Bible teaches. So when we, we come along and we say, oh, I believe the Bible teaches that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, they'll say, what are you talking about? If we say that we believe that in a tribulation period when an antichrist will come and rule the world and Jesus will come with his armies to defeat him, they'll say, you're crazy. If we say we believe that Jesus actually walked on water and was born of a virgin and was able to feed thousands of people with five loaves and a few fishes, they'll say, you're crazy. There aren't many. There are not many who actually believe what the Bible says. So don't be offended. Expect it. Expect it. You know, because when the time comes when, you, when, when someone makes, tries to make a fool of you or persecutes you, you're not going to be upset, are you, if you begin to expect it. So expect it. And finally, understand that if you do experience persecution and rejection by your family, your friends, your community, your country, 
understand that Jesus already went through it. He already went through it. And whatever you are experiencing today, and I don't think many of us experience too much, to be honest with you. We've got it really good here. Understand that Jesus experienced much more than you ever will experience. Turn to John chapter 15, verse 18 for our last passage. John 15, 18 says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Understand that whatever you go through, Jesus has already gone through it already. Jesus already experienced it. And not only that, but Jesus is actually with us. He's with you going through that as well. We have the immense privilege of having Jesus and our Lord with us every step of the way. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So whatever trial or, or, or trial you go through in your life, understand that Jesus has never left you. You may think in your mind that you're alone, but you aren't. What we see happening to Israel during the tribulation is a result of immense hatred. The hatred during the tribulation will be absolutely incredible, and I'll talk about this in the next, next sermon. But this hatred is already present in the world. You see, the reason people don't become as bad as they are, or they could be, is because of two things, believe it or not. Human government and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now keep those two things in mind. The reason that this world isn't as depraved or as bad as it could be is because of two things. The rule of law actually restricts men from doing evil and the Holy Spirit restricts people from expressing their evil as much as possible, as much as they would like. Now, take those two things away and you have an absolutely disastrous situation. You know what's happening in the Middle East now where they're lopping people's heads off and that? There is no government, no rule of law, and the Holy Spirit is not working in people's hearts over there. He is pulled away. That's a result of what happens when those two things are taken away. What will happen during the tribulation period will be, once again, the rule of law will be taken away, the Antichrist will be in charge, and before the tribulation happens, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. That's why we depart this place. Because at the moment, part of what your job is, is to, through the Holy Spirit working through you, this is not you, this is the Holy Spirit working through us, that we are restricting, in a sense, the Antichrist from revealing himself and from this world being as evil as it possibly can be. But when the church is taken out of the way, game's changed. Understand you aren't alone and you never will be. But today, we need to stand firm on God's word. And if you ever feel alone, remember this passage in Romans 8.35, which I'll close with. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember that always. God bless you. Thank you.